the world around us screams for our attention. What's right? What's wrong? Who has the answers? Who should I believe? Come plug into a new reality. Oh, how you going? Good to see you. Church, I, I, I have to say I love what my daughter prayed for me earlier um, today about me speaking tonight, and I love what she said. She said, I hope my mom, or she says mom, I hope mom feels at home at church and on stage, and I'm just like, what? But you know what, coming here, I am. I love Sunday nights, and I love it, and thanks for coming out, and I feel so at home because you are my church family. And welcome if you are visiting for the first time tonight. Um, we are right snack dab, smack dab in the middle of our spiritual reality series. And over the past four weeks, we have been looking at competing realities, competing voices, just like Charles, that amazing South African voice in the promo there said, and competing voices that have been telling us how to live, how we should live, how we should act, how we should talk, um, and the list goes on. And tonight, we are going to be digging into the passages in the book of James, chapter 3. And for those of you that are familiar with the book of James, um, know that James doesn't mess around. Um, he's a straight shooter. He's a straight talker, and he's going to get up all in our grill, and he's going to challenge the way we live from the inside out, because that's exactly what's happened to James. But before we jump into the text, I just want to give you a little background into James, because reading James is so confronting and convicting and painful and preparing for this. It was convicting, confronting, and so stinking painful, because I could see myself all over it. Um, it felt like literally like having a root canal without any anesthetic. And I want to give you just a little window into his life to help the medicine go down a little bit easier. But before we do, let's pray. Father, there is a sweetness in here tonight, and I could sense it during the worship, and thank you so much for your presence here. And so, God, tonight, as we dig into your word, it's going to be a hard word. It's a strong word. And so, God, I pray that your word would cut straight to the matter, straight to our hearts, just cut straight through, God. And as you expose um, possible wounds that are there, God, I pray for healing in Jesus' name. I pray that it would go deep, right to our root system, your healing, your love. And thank you that you're gentle. And thank you that you're the one who's doing the cutting because you know exactly where to go. So God, so I pray for us tonight, I pray for me tonight, God, that you would absolutely have your way, have your way, have your way. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. So, James, let me get it up. As we talk about James. Now, there are several James mentioned in the New Testament, but most scholars agree that the writer of the book of James was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, his conversion is one of the greatest cases for faith for Christianity. I mean, seriously. I mean, what would it take for it to convince you that your big brother was the son of God? James has this radical life change, and there's much to say about it, but you can tell by the way 
that he starts his letter back in chapter one, that he's had this radical life change because James opens up his letter with this. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of your translations um, may say slave or bondservant, but his opening statement is so radical. And what's amazing to me that he doesn't play the brother card in his um, opening introduction. He could have said James, the brother of Jesus, to give himself some sway and some prestige, but he doesn't. Instead, he calls himself a servant, a slave, a bondservant to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the radical part of that isn't so much that he calls himself a servant of God, because in the Old Testament, all throughout it, the prophets were called servants of God. That fit right along the lines of his Jewish upbringing and culture. It was that second part that was so radical. I'm a slave of God and I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. That part was revolutionary. I serve God and I serve that man. And not just a man, but I think he is the Christ, Messiah, God's solution for the world. And not only do I think he's the Christ, I think he is the Lord. For a Jew to say that was absolutely radical. He uses the only, he uses the holy sacred name of God, Yahweh. Ancient Jews wouldn't even utter or say the name Yahweh because they revered it so much. It had connotations of deity. And many of the early Christians were killed, not so much because they were Christians, even though they were killed for that. They were killed because they refused to do what everybody in the Roman Empire was expected to do, burn incense and say two little words, Curios Caesar. Caesar is Lord. The Christians wouldn't do it. They would change the wording. They would say, Curios Jesu, Jesus is Lord. And they would be put to death for their insubordination. Now, I love this. James had two nicknames, James the Just and Camel Knees. Do you know why he's called Camel Knees? Because he spent so much time praying and interceding for others that historians record that his knees took on a leathery appearance much like camel's knees. In 64 AD, James angered the leaders so much that he was taken to the top of one of the temple towers and he was thrown down. He didn't die, so at the point where he landed, a mob commenced with the stoning. But even the stoning does not end his life. Eventually, someone came with the club and finished the job. I could go on and on because I thought and studying about his life is fascinating, but I just wanted to give us a small window into James so that you could see his heart, because in a minute, he's going to get all up in our business. These last four weeks, we've been looking at and contrasting two different realities, how the world sees things and how God sees things. Is it friendship with the world or is it friendship with God? Is it faith or is it works? Is it rich man or is it poor man? Is it blessing or cursing with our words? Now, in James chapter 3, he's going to talk about wisdom. He's going to give us a little wisdom test, if you like. Now, the wisdom he talks about falls into two camps, the wise and the unwise, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. What camp do you fall in? He will show us the characteristics of these two camps, their sources and origins and perspectives, and their fruit. So we're going to have it up on the screen, but let's have a look at James chapter 3, and then we will go back and talk about it. Before I read, let's have a drink. Look at that, a Diet Coke just suddenly appeared up here. <laughs> I am trying to break the addiction, I will say. Okay. But it's a diet. 
Okay, so that's how I justify it. It's diet, it's diet. Okay, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest, reap a harvest of righteousness. Now James roots this text in the Old Testament wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are these short, pithy statements that pack a punch. Now, Proverbs uses all sorts of synonyms for the word wisdom, and one of them being insight. And some of your translations might say that. Um, wisdom or um, prudence or discernment. Those, it's like seeing reality and understanding how things work together. So a quick definition of all of that, like wisdom, discernment, prudence, insight. A quick definition of wisdom is knowing how things are, knowing how things work, and then knowing what to do about it. Now, wisdom is more than just knowledge and acquiring data. We all know people who are super book smart, geniuses who can ace a test, but you put them in the bush or tramping, and they will die from hyperthermia because they can't light a fire. Or they know the ins and outs of neuroscience, but they can't hold a conversation. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, all you have to do is watch Big Bang Theory. I love that show. To see all these geniuses living together in this house, and how they just get on in the real world. Now, James starts with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? It's almost like James is instinctively anticipating your answer. It forces us to ask ourselves if I think I'm wise or not, or how I character someone who I think is wise. Do I think someone is wise if they say smart stuff and can use big words? Do I think someone is wise because they are rich and savvy in business? I mean, watching the U.S. presidential debate just totally tanks that idea. Um, it's like, seriously, like, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. Now, some translations in your Bible might say, let them show it by their good conduct, or by their conduct, let them show. What's interesting is the Greek here, um, the Greek word or it can be used sometimes for emphasis. And you can throw a word forward to create that emphasis. And the next word is an imperative command, and it says this, show me. Who is wise and understanding among you? And just as you're about to answer, James is like, eh, no, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. Show me. So you think you're wise? Show me. And how are you going to show, show me? Let's look at your life, because the rest of the verse says, let them show it by their good conduct, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. What we are going to see is, a good, is good conduct and a good life. And I love what the Greek, the Greek word for good means here. It means beautiful. So you think you're wise? Then show me by your beautiful life. James is saying, I don't need to hear your words. I don't need to look at you. I just need to look at your life and see if it is beautiful. In other words, the life of the believer should be a life that is lovely and beautiful in the sense that we are practicing righteousness, 
that we are doing good works out of the overflow of a changed heart. A beautiful life is not one that's perfect and has all their ducks in a row. That is not the kind of beautiful life that James is talking about. It's about your internal character. It's about your heart. And it will be in the way that you make decisions, the way you navigate through relationships, how you deal with money, how you talk to and about people around you, on camera or off camera, with the mic switched on and with the mic switched off. How are you talking? And can I just say the heavenly mic is always on. He can hear you always. And you want to know what the hallmark of wisdom is? And we will see this permeated all through your character. The hallmark of wisdom is humility. True wisdom is characterized by humility. James, again, is referencing the book of Proverbs. And all through Proverbs, who is the wise person? The person who understands that they don't know everything. The definition of a fool is in the book of Proverbs is a person who thinks they know it all and they won't stop telling everybody about it. Anybody ever read the book Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez? It was a book written in the early 2000s. It's all about people who survive horrendous circumstances, shipwrecks at sea in shark-infested waters, plane crashes in the Amazon jungle, earthquakes and being trapped under rubble for days. My husband loves these type of books, and he loves watching these type of documentaries. The author, Lawrence Gonzalez, interviews all sorts of survivors who have lived through some harsh, difficult, and horrendous situations. And he documented common characteristics in survivors. Now, have a think for a minute. What defines survivors? If you're in the jungle or in the Arctic, what do you think is one of the key characteristics of survival? And I was thinking about it, because I was kind of reading the article and kind of reading it a little bit fast. I thought, oh, maybe it's a gun, or a first aid kit, Swiss Army knife, food, gas, compass, GPS, cell phone, space blanket. So I was trying to see, you know, what was the answer was going to be. But he says one of the key characteristics of survival is humility. Gonzalez was interviewing paragliders, and the instructor was telling him that one of the most dangerous paragliders is not the newbie, not the new guy. The dangerous paraglider is the one who has been paragliding for about 100 hours of flight time, who knows how to handle thermals, that they can do cross-country trips and have been up to cloud base. He said that person is the most dangerous. They are dangerous because, and I love this, they think they know enough to think they know it all. And they are a danger to themselves and to everyone around them. And he told the story about a friend of his, how on day one, his friend traveled 40 miles paragliding through the air, which is a really big deal in paragliding world. Day two, died. Day two, he got in a rough situation where, if he was wise, he would have parachuted out to safety. But he was such a rock star day one that he thought he could handle it himself, and he kept trying to fix the problem until he hit the earth. And his friend said it was because he was so good on day one that he died on day two. And he said this, check out this quote. Those who gain experience while retaining a firm hold to a beginner's state of mind become long-term survivors. You want to survive? Gain experience, but never lose the beginner state of mind. Always learning, not thinking you know it all, always staying teachable, 
Um, humility is a characteristic of the wise. Now, one of the most wise and humblest people that I know is a mighty Jim Hearn, and I know I've talked about him a lot, but I just can't help it because I love him so much. Jim Hearn, he's one of our resident preachers here at BBC. And he was diagnosed in 2015 with um, terminal cancer, and he was given just months to live. But Jim Hearn is a true testimony of the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because he is still preaching and teaching today. And he taught up a storm on Wednesday morning at Serious Coffee, our women's Bible study that meets here. And he we just started a new series led by Jim called Hiking Through Hebrews with Hearn. And it's so cool. He loves that title. I love what Jim had to say. He was all excited and he was like a little kid. And when he said this, he says, I'm learning so many new things about the book of Hebrews. It's challenging me in ways I never thought possible, so much so that God is waking me up at 5 a.m. to write things down. You see, Jim is in his 80s, and the word of God still buzzes him out and excites him. Those who gain experience while retaining a firm hold on the beginner's state of mind become long-term survivors. Yes, Lord, may it be so of us. A truly wise person just has to look up and look around and see how God has woven this earth together and has plans and purposes for it. A wise person sees that and responds accordingly because they see God clearly, they see the world clearly, and they see themselves clearly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's being awed by an infinitely good and loving God. Now, true humility isn't putting yourself down. Oh, I have to learn it. It is a reality check that everything is not all about you. By contrast, if you don't have humility, guess what you do have? Verse 14, verse 14 says, if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So the hallmark of wisdom is humility. But if you're jealous and ambitious, don't be proud or cocky about that because that's not wisdom. Oh, and just a side note, I think all ambitious motives are not selfish. There are some forms of ambitious motives that are jealous for the well-being of someone else and jealous for the glory of God. But the motives that James is talking about are absolutely sinful. Notice that he doesn't say if you harbor jealousy. No, he says if you harbor bitter jealousy. He doesn't just say if you have ambition. He says if you have selfish ambition. And jealousy turns bad and ugly and bitter when you take what God, when you take God out and put yourself in. I want it all for me. Bitter jealousy says, I want that for me and you have it, so I hate you. We see this all the time, this I want it, you have it, I hate you, played out all the time. How about every episode or season of The Bachelor ever aired? For put 30 girls together in a house, all vying for one guy, you got you some bitter jealousy, some um, selfish ambition, and loads of crying. And here's the thing, we like it. We like it. This format of I want him, you have him, I hate you, absolutely works because they have filmed, get this, 20 seasons of The Bachelor, and it's been on air for 14 years. We love this stuff. We love it. We love it. I want it, you have it, I hate you. The NIV says, if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, harbor, harbor. What is a harbor for? 
What do boats do in a harbor? A harbor is a place where a boat drops anchor. It's a picture of someone who drops their anchor as far as it will go so that it will not budge, and anchor is right there in their bitterness, their bitter jealousy, and their selfish ambition. And it will drive and influence every decision that you make. And if you've been tracking with the morning series in the life of David, you would have seen this played out in the life of Saul and his relationship with David. Saul's bitter jealousy and his selfish ambition ambition was his total undoing. James goes on to say, and don't deny that that's what's going on for you. Don't deny the truth. Don't try and cover it up. And what is the opposite of deny? It's to confess. We confess it. We admit the fact that we have dropped anchor in our bitterness and selfishness, and don't try and cover it up and act like everything's okay. And verse 15 says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, spiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And he is saying the problem with living your life this way, being earthly and making it all about you or all about me, is that we cut out all of heaven. We lose sight of God. Now, being earthly, this all about me, also makes us totally unspiritual. We cut God out of the equation. We forget that there is a bigger story, God's story playing out there. And driving all of it, James says, he doesn't mess around. He says it's demons. It's demonic behavior. Notice he doesn't say if you're jealous and ambitious, just try and keep that under control. No, he says bitter jealousy and selfish ambitious is evil and it's dark. And if we are driven by that, we need to be careful because ultimately it will not end well for us. And it's not from God, and it's certainly not wisdom. And it sounds harsh, but he justifies it in the next verse. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Another word for disorder is instability. So God wants to build up and build life. But if this is what's driving you, it, builds in, it brings instability and disorder to a community. It tears the fabric of relationships. And we know this, and we don't like it when we see other people doing this. And again, we see this played out all the time in politics, enough said, or sports teams, when a hotshot player um, hogs the spotlight and it's all about them and their numbers and their triple-double and their paycheck and not about the team at all. It rips teams apart, and it kills morale. And how about, and this kills me, rock bands. Rock bands that break up because of egos and in-house bickering. I mean, think Oasis. They hate each other. Or Yoko Ono and the Beatles. The Eagles, Fleetwood Mac. And young people, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but this is like tragic. This is like tragic. I'm showing my age. I'm showing my age. The Eagles, Fleetwood Mac. The music just stops, and it stinks, and everybody loses. And it can take decades for egos to be put aside and relationships to be restored, if ever. But can I remind you who James is talking to? He says, who is wise and understanding among you, my brothers and sisters? It is being played out in the church. People who align themselves with people who they perceive to be important or align themselves to ministries they deem to be grand for their own gain. But where, church, of all places, should there be evidence of beautiful lives being lived out 
but in church. Ought not the bride of Christ to demonstrate a beautiful life lived to Christ? But when we operate out of worldly wisdom in our churches, instead of godly wisdom, it descends into disorder and every vile practice. And what James shows us is that worldly wisdom sows a harvest of disorder and instability in the soil of bitter envy and selfish ambition. But there's good news. Here's the good part. Let me just go back to the other slide. Ah, there we go. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes from heaven, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I love the contrasts here. Worldly wisdom sows strife, but godly wisdom sows righteousness and order in the fertile soil, in the fertile soil of peacemaking. Now let's just have a look at that for a minute. The wisdom from above is first of all pure. That means godly wisdom is rightly motivated rightly motivated by the glory of God and for the good of others. There's no hidden agenda. It's gentle and not harsh. You have to love the people who you minister to or are speaking truth to, or else it'll just sound so harsh. Without gentleness and, and love, everything just sounds really, really harsh, and it's hard to take. Godly wisdom is slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to get angry. And Jesus likened himself to this quality, this gentleness. He said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Godly wisdom is considerate and open to reason. In other words, godly wisdom is open to discussion. They do not find open and honest discussion threatening, quick to admit when they're wrong. They're teachable and quick to respond. Godly wisdom is full of mercy. That means that it overlooks offenses. It doesn't hold on to the, or the hurts, doesn't hold on to offenses, and it doesn't drop anchor there. Godly wisdom is full of good fruit, and we know what those are. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And godly wisdom is impartial and doesn't play favorites. Godly wisdom is sincere, it's genuine and authentic and without show. And James ends with this verse, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Notice that he does not, notice what Jesus does not say, and notice what James does not say. He does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers, or that peacekeepers will reap a harvest of righteousness. No, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. You and I are called to make peace between God and man by sharing the gospel and pointing them towards the truth of salvation. And we are called to make peace between man and man, to reconcile one to another. But peacekeepers are people who avoid conflict at any cost. It's a short-term resolution for ongoing problems. It's passive and a hunkering down. Let's just hunker down until the storm passes. Peacemakers are in it for the long haul. It's, the, it's active, and it looks for ways to move forward and to restore relationships. They are willing to have that hard conversation with that loved one and coworker. But peacekeeping is the path of the least resistance. 
They don't even want to go there because it's just too stinking hard. Peacemaking is the harder path, but it's the path of discipleship. We all have those relationships where we tread on eggshells and we can't talk about certain stuff. We don't even want to go there, or we pander to our kids sometimes, time and time again, just to keep the peace. And it's like that verse, and I think it's in Jeremiah, that says, peace, peace. You say peace, peace when there is no peace. We're just trying to keep things just calm for like a minute, so we shove in a DVD. But if that becomes a habit, we're never dealing with the issue or the problem. Peace is not just an absence of war, it's shalom taking my gifts and sowing in peace that reaps a harvest of righteousness. And when I do that, my community flourishes and those in my sphere of influence flourishes and everybody wins. Having these qualities is to have a beautiful life. Now that is the fruit of righteousness. And when a humble person, when, when a humble wisdom is lived out, it truly is a beautiful thing to behold. And how do we get this wisdom? James chapter 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. You ask, and God will give it generously. I pray this all the time. And that's what I mean when I pray, God, make me smarter than I am. What I'm saying is, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And where is the ultimate piece of wisdom, the ultimate source of wisdom? Proverbs will say, by wisdom, the foundations of the earth were laid, and all her ways are peace. It personifies peace as a woman. It's an allegory of a woman that God took and wove wisdom in, and all her ways are shalom. And when you get to the New, but when you get to the New Testament, wisdom is not just an allegory. It's a physical person. Scripture says that all things were made through him. Paul says that Jesus has become for us wisdom. If you want to see wisdom, look at Jesus. Jesus does not possess wisdom. He is wisdom. And as he walks in the world, what happens? He's a son of God, all-powerful. Demons flee in front of him. And what does he do? He's kind to the hurting. He takes verbal assault and persecution and doesn't strike back. He bends the knee and washes the feet of his messed-up disciples. He becomes a servant, even to death, death on the cross. Wisdom personified becomes to us the prince of peace. He sowed peace for us because we were not okay with God because of the kind of evil heart we've been talking about. Jesus took on all that evil, dark and twisted, that dark and twisted sin, and he who knew no sin became sin for us on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. He brought peace back. You want wisdom? You follow Jesus. And as I close, I just want to challenge those that if you want more wisdom, and I'm hoping that is all of us here, that you ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And I love that part because meaning he's not going to get mad at you because you're asking for wisdom again. He says, ask, ask, and, you will, and I will give it, and I will give it generously. And I also want to sensitively ask this question. Because I know this really, God really brought this to mind for me. And it was so hard. The question is this, have you dropped anchor? Have you dropped anchor? Have you dropped anchor by harboring hurts in your heart, which now has turned bitter and selfish? Would you take the time now 
to confess that to God who loves you and who is infinitely good and faithful. Confess it and let God lift and cut off that heavy burden that has been weighing you down and leave it at the foot of the cross. And don't let the moment go by, especially as the band leads us in that last song. Don't let it go by. You, you give it over to the Lord, who is absolutely a burden lifter and a shame lifter. But before the band plays, the thing that God brought to my mind, and I hadn't thought about this literally in years, is a clip from the mission. It's about a slave trader who murders his little brother out of a fit of bitter jealousy, and he's been literally carrying around his burdens all through the jungle. And just dragging it around, his sin, his reproach, it's his, pen, it's his penance. And he's following the Jesuit priest back to the very community where he captured natives and sold them into slavery. And I think it's a fitting picture of forgiveness and just letting go of the burden of bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition, and the freedom that it brings. It is freedom for Christ. It is freedom that Christ has set you free. It's an awesome picture. If you could play the clip, that would be great. Thank <laughs> you. 